go ahead and open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Um, for our text today, uh, I heard a statement once. Few people necessarily like confrontation, even though it's sometimes necessary. But those who do like confrontation should necessarily avoid it. You want me to say that again? <laughs> um, today we're going to be talking about confronting a brother who is in sin. And we're going to be going through Matthew 18, verses 15 to 22. Uh, but the reality is that nobody likes confrontation, especially in our culture. Uh, most often, what I've experienced is Christians will see the need to bury their troubles that they have with others uh, in order to preserve what they think is peace. And so, therefore, they keep their mouths shut. But, it, but what, what bothers them or what's been done against them ends up stewing in their heart and it curdles and it begins to rot and it turns into a, 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 a festering hatred that never seems to go away. What God calls us to do, and we'll see in our text, is something much more costly than keeping our mouths shut. We're going to read about the expectations of what I'll call gracious confrontation in God's kingdom on earth. We're going to hear Jesus' commands on what to do when someone sins against us. And that us is kind of a floating principle, so we'll, we'll get there. But uh, go ahead and open up again. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 22. And you might miss that I'm skipping the parable, by the way, at the, uh, for the latter half, but we'll, we'll get there. So starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Um, so Jesus laid out essentially four, a, a four-step plan to, to deal with people who sin against us. Um, and the, the fourth step is not one that we, we, we want to do. Um, so so th this is just verses 15 to 17. First, you go alone and you tell the person their fault, right? Um, I'm going to venture a guess that this is probably the hardest step for any of us. When somebody wrongs us, uh, again, like I said, as Christians, we, tend to, we, 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 we start to think like, man, maybe, may, maybe I just misunderstood it. Maybe I'm the problem. 
they're probably not the problem, I could be the problem. And so therefore, it takes, it takes a strength and a courage to go to someone who's sinned against us, unless it's something grievous. Like, for instance, uh, in the matter of adultery, or maybe infidelity uh, in, other, in other avenues in life, or maybe your boss totally cheated you out of a paycheck. There's certain reasons why we're more bold to, a, to approach someone who's sinned against us. But in general, I'm going to say this is the hardest one. When we're sinned against, our hurt is usually pretty deep. But therefore, if, if, if we really love the person who sinned against us, then our desire is going to be to go to that person and say, brother, friend, pal, buddy, dude, you've sinned against me. This is what you did, and it hurt. Now, as Jesus says, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. And that's great news. That's wonderful news. But what happens when the person then goes, ah, okay, yeah, you know what? You're just too sensitive. You're just a pansy, and you just can't take it, okay? So this is your problem. And, uh, and frankly, I'm not going to change. What do you do? You go to step two. You go with two or three witnesses. If the, if the one who sinned against you sees no need to repent of their wrongdoing, take some other people, right? Um, and, it, and when it says witnesses here, it does not mean those who witness the sin. It means those who are, trying, who are there to witness your attempts at reconciliation, your attempts at going to the person who's wronged you. And, and frankly, this is both for your protection and the protection of the person that's, that's sinned against you. In our world today, I mean, hey, if it doesn't have body camera, it's whoever, whoever claims that they're the victim first. So the, so the, the, the point of the witnesses is, is really to make sure everybody's safe in the situation. But it's also kind of there to check you. Because if you're going to someone, you're saying, listen, this person keeps coming over and cutting my daisies, and they need to stop. And I've told them to stop. And then, and then you go with two or three witnesses, and the person goes, actually, dude, that's my property line. Your daisies grew on my... Let's, let's pop out the things. If you're in the wrong, the witnesses are there to, to convict you as well. But, but ultimately, what Jesus is implying is that you have been sinned against. You are the victim. And so in general, the witnesses going with you are there to make sure that what they see is what's true, right? The person again, uh, maybe, maybe this time they respond to it and they go, you know what? I've been thinking about it. I've been praying about it. And I have, I have sinned against you and I'm sorry. But sometimes they don't. Sometimes even with, 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 with witnesses against them, the person is going to go, no, no, you're wrong. And the witnesses are there to witness that. What do you do then? Well, Jesus says, go and tell it to the church. Now, uh, Matthew Henry was especially helpful for me in, in interpreting these verses. But the commentator Matthew Henry is a Puritan commentator. He wrote a commentary on the entire Bible that's like this thick. Uh, and, 
And in it, he, with, with the use of the word church, we translate this word as church, he, he said it this way. He said, while the church had not yet been birthed, it was yet an embryo. And so Jesus is thinking forward. He's thinking about the future. Uh, when, when Jesus says this, there's no such thing as the church. And what Jesus actually uses in, in his verbiage, he says, go and tell it to the fellowship. Go and tell it to the gathering. Well, what gathering? The synagogue? Why would I tell the synagogue? The Jews hate us. That doesn't make any sense. So when we read that, that, that advice, if he refuses to listen to them in verse 17, tell it to the church. Jesus is looking forward. He's looking forward to the day that the church exists. When the church is a, is a community gathered in covenant under, for, the, for the sole purpose of worshiping and glorifying Jesus, and when problems sometimes arise, I'm sorry, when problems always arise between people, and sometimes they're unrepentant, you tell it to the church. Why? Because maybe the witnesses aren't enough. Maybe this person needs to have the church come to them and say, uh, no, this is sinful. The, this practice, this thing, this whatever you're doing, it is sinful. Because sometimes, sometimes, people will only finally see their sin when there's a group of people that are talking to them. And notice how this is set up too. Like this is really honorable. You, you, you go and tell someone that, you, that they've, they've sinned against you. And then if that doesn't work, you go with just a couple people. You're not trying to put this person on trial. You're trying to restore them. And we'll get to that in a second. But, but if, if they don't even listen to the church, what do you do? The fourth step is that he, if he or she still refuses to listen, even to the church, you consider them a Gentile or a tax collector. I like how the King James puts it, a publican. Anyway, uh, that means something different in the UK. That means you own a pub. But, <laughs> but anyway, uh, but, but the, the point is that if, if you've exhausted every step and this person simply doesn't see that they've sinned, simply doesn't understand or, 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 or want to understand that they need to repent, then you count them as an outsider. And that's the step we never want to get to. In any situation, of, of any moment where we find out that the differences are irreconcilable, which if you've ever gone through a divorce, that's like, that's, that's the stuff you don't want to see. That, you can, that, that somebody is unwilling to repent, unwilling to, to make it work, unwilling to humble themselves, that now there is no other option than to count them as an outsider. That's when they're out of fellowship, right? If you tell it to the fellowship and now you have to go through step four, they're no longer in fellowship. They're cast out. They're considered not just a sinner, but an unsaved sinner. 
And it's important to note that in every single one of these stages, the, the hope is actually restoring this person, right? Uh, every single step. Um, you want to think that, that, that this person is not going down a slippery slope, but at some point, the Lord is going to shine a bright light through the confrontation of God's people, and they're going to go, you know what? I have sinned. I do need to repent. I do, I do need your grace and your mercy. Because if they listen to you, then you have gained your brother. Not an outsider. Not somebody to be cast out, but your brother. And in that last step, what I want to point out to you real quick is that Jesus doesn't say, count them as Satan and cut them off from all communication, never speak to them again. In fact, it might be better to burn their house down. Here's a candle. <laughs> Jesus doesn't say that. He says, count them as somebody who needs the saving work of the gospel. Because in this whole process, you're going to them as a Christian brother, hoping that they receive the sanctifying work of the gospel. The gospel, the, the good news that tells us that we are yet still sinners in need of repentance. And you hope that they turn and they change and they, they, they fall on the grace and mercy of God. But if they, if they don't, then you count them as someone who still needs the good news that brings them to salvation. Not as an enemy. Now, that's essentially the whole sermon, and we can go home. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I, I want to talk about why, why is this necessary? Why is this important? Why do we even care? Why does Jesus even have to come up with this? Well, if we read, again, Matthew chapter 18, then we find that there is a progression here. There is a progression of thought that's been occurring essentially since the beginning. Remember how this all started? The disciples were arguing about who was the greatest. And Jesus, to humble them, said, hey, look at this child. You're supposed to be humble like this needy child. Not arguing about who's the greatest. And whoever receives one of these children, these little ones, these believers in my name, then good. But whoever tempts them to sin, whoever wants to cast them out, whoever wants to be uh, divisive or angry or bitter or tell them that sin is okay, whatever it is that's causing them to be tempted, then it's a better for a millstone to be hung around their neck. And then Jesus gives it from the perspective, not of the tempter, but of the tempted, right? Uh, that's what we covered last week. We're not to hate the wandering sheep, those who have been pushed out by people who claim to be Christians, but, were un, but were, who were lacking grace and who, who, who ultimately it's better for a millstone to be hung around their neck because they, they are causing little ones to sin. And those little ones that, are, that have wandered off into sin, trying to seek some sort of, of peace and contentment in the world, they need to be restored. How do you restore a person like that? You go after them and you tell them their sin. That's where we're at. That's where we're at in this thought flow. Because if your brother sins against you, whether it's the tempter or the one that's, that's wayward and, and, and is wandering, you go to them and you tell them their fault. 
In his book, uh, Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, who went a little nutty at the end of his life. But if I were tortured by Nazi war criminals, then I also probably would go a little nutty. But in his book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer tries to explain the role of what he calls Christian community. And he says that that's life together. And he spends much of the book uh, expounding, the, expounding the role of the word fellowship or koinonia, which is consequently in our verses today. I'm sorry, ecclesia. Uh, ecclesia means the gathering and fellowship. Koinonia means fellowship is in sharing. But anyway, so uh, he spends much, much of that book trying to expound on the ecclesia, but then he also works hard in the very first chapter to define the role of community in a Christian's life. And if you read nothing else of this book, the first, book, uh, the first chapter is great. Bonhoeffer says this, Without Christ, there is discord between God and man, and between man and man, Christ became the mediator and, be, and made peace with God and among men. Think of the world, right? Uh, all the people, all, all people tend to have their squabbles. Um, but then there's some people, and I really mean a lot of people, who have these squabbles that blow up. They become volcanic. And, and they, they, they refuse to talk to this person ever, Right? feuds between neighbor and neighbor who literally spend day after day less than 50 feet from one another won't even say hi over a fence because of something that happened decades ago, a hurt that they've harbored. And you know what? If you were to go to either of those two neighbors, you would find a completely legitimized excuse for this feud. There is no mediator between those two people. Nor do they want one. And if you step in, you will quickly become Jesus. And what I mean by that is you'll become martyred <laughs> as you try and solve these ridiculous disputes. But in Christ, we have a different view of relationships. We have something built not on flesh, but something built on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ himself. The one who took on our sin and our suffering. The one that poured out blood for our redemption. There is supposed to be a greater link in Christian community than anything else in existence. This, the, 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 Jesus Christ is what makes any church different from any social club. We are supposed to be knit together as one body. Not, not like Frankenstein, but like, or Frankenstein's monster, but not like Frankenstein's monster, but, but instead we're supposed to be a single, united, functioning body. That's the redeeming wonder that should have every Christian looking at conflict, not trying to bury it, but trying to deal with it. Trying to go to people and saying, you've, you've wronged me. You've wronged us. And some things to remember when we're trying to rescue a brother or sister in unrepentant sin. Number one, sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James 1.15 Christ took on death so that we might have life. And therefore, we must be willing to step in the way of a brother who is treading that path of death and claiming that they're walking the path of life.
because we see them dying. We see them suffering. We see them wasting away. We watch as their faith, which once appeared to be ablaze, has now shrunk down to less than the light of a single candle. And we need to rescue them. We can't just let them wallow. If somebody was sinking in quicksand, would we go, eh, maybe they can make it. No, we, we'd want to rescue them out. We'd find a branch. We'd do everything. But frankly, for whatever reason, in, in Christian community, you can hand someone the branch and the person will slap it out of your hand and say, I don't need your help. And that's when you escalate from one person to three to the church. Number two, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. Luke eleven seventeen. Jesus says this um, because he wants Christians to understand that a gathering of believers can't be divided. Because once, once the seams start tearing, that's when it's doomed. Listen, Jesus did not die so that there would be discord and division in his body. Jesus did not die so the hand would be sitting over there, and then the foot would be sitting over there, and both of them screaming at each other, why can't you do what I want you to do? That is not what the, what the church is meant to look like. Jesus didn't die for that. When the Corinthian church was arguing about who their favorite teacher was, Paul writes this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. That's 1 Corinthians 1.10. Paul wanted the Corinthian church to not be pulling in every direction. Well, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. Oh, I follow Jesus. Instead, he wanted them to be working together, benefiting from one another. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another, the proverb says. And if, if a church is not united on the same front with the same mind and with the same judgment, then it's doomed. There is no hope for it. None. It's a kingdom doomed to failure. Why? Because a kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And it's a family destined for divorce. Number three, we should take confrontation of sin seriously because God takes sin seriously. Right? Right? Is it, doesn't God take sin seriously? Doesn't he at one point say, uh, be holy for I am holy? Actually, he says it in six different points. Uh, seven, if you count 1 Peter, when he quotes it. But the, the book of Leviticus, which is everybody's favorite book, um, if you're going to read one book of the Bible, Leviticus is probably your best. I'm just kidding. Uh, but, but the book of Leviticus was written for our instruction, not in practice, but in purpose, right? We don't need to do the Levitical sacrifices. But, but when we read Leviticus, when we go through our Bible reading plan, which I'm assuming everyone does and reads through the Bible in a year, I'm looking at the TV now because everybody just gave me a look. Anyway, so <laughs> when you read through the Bible in a year, you go through Leviticus, and what you find is five times in the book, God repeats that refrain. He says, be holy, for I am holy. 
If you want the references, it's Leviticus 11, 44, 19, 2, 19, 20, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 20, verse 7, and 20, verse 26, um, and uh, 21, 8. I think I messed that up. That's 20, verse 7, and 20, verse 26. I think I said 27. Anyway, and also around the same time that Moses is recording Leviticus, right, we could turn to Exodus 19, verse 6. And we read him say, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Holy. Uh, 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 separate. Pure. Sin-free. Sin that's none of us. <laughs> Raise your hand if that's you. Everybody should drop to the floor. The point, the point that, that he's saying is that I am holding you accountable to these laws. And these laws are for abstaining from sin. And you're going to fail. And you know what? You need a sacrifice. Ultimately, that sacrifice is Jesus. Therefore, what we should do is confront people who are in sin because we know that God takes sin seriously. He wants his people free from the struggle and the toil and the suffering that sin causes. Since God is holy, God's people are therefore to be holy. Now, I've, I've, I've thrown a lot at you, but, but what are some examples, right? What, Pastor, what are some examples of someone's sin that needs to be confronted? Well, I mean, an obvious sin would be division. I've mentioned it several times. Uh, this is something that all people in a church need to be standing against. When somebody divides a church body, they have sinned against you as a member of that church body. So when we read in Matthew 18, when your brother sins against you, that against you does not just mean you. It means everything that you're a part of in Christ. So if somebody is causing division... What are we to do? Well, um, we're, supposed to, uh, we're, we're supposed to go through another process that's pretty similar. We could turn to Titus 3, 10, 11 and read that. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. That's a little bit different than what we read in Matthew. It's similar, but it's different. But what, what about when a person does sin against you? What might that look like? Well, I said one, a Christian boss who maybe skips a paycheck of yours and says, well, no, you got it, didn't you? Or maybe a boss who tells you to lie. I, just, uh, I was just listening to a sermon from a preacher who's, uh, who's he, uh, oh my gosh, I almost, anyway. So he, he, he's in Washington, D.C. And so they've got a lot of like, like, uh, people that work with senators that go to this church, and uh, and the he gave an example in it of what happens when your boss tells you to lie when you go when he says to send a, a message to the next senator. You know what? Why just tell just tell him? Oh, this is the second message when it's the first, or oh, this is the third message. Why haven't you responded? You need to confront that boss, especially if he's a Christian. Or what about a Christian boss who shows favoritism? Those are all sins, right? What about a fellow church member who gossips about you? Or maybe one who's overly critical of you and causes you to feel shame when you haven't sinned? 
I just heard of a lady the other day who uh, went up to a teenager that was singing on the stage of a church and said, you know, I'm pretty sure hookers dress like that. Guess, guess who's not singing anymore? <laughs> and guess who needs to be confronted? Or what about a Christian neighbor who's taking advantage of your charity somehow? Somebody who claims to be a Christian, they come over, they keep borrowing your stuff, they break your stuff, they never return it. That person needs to be confronted, not with a weed whacker. So those are just a few possible examples of someone sinning against you. Um, what, what, if, what if the person, though, refuses to reconcile? Or what if they cut you off after step one, right? Uh, this is probably one of the hardest things to deal with. When you go to someone, you say, listen, you sinned against me. And they just have nothing to do with you after that. That hurts. But you've done your due diligence. In love, you approached them and you told them that, that, that they've sinned. And in their coldness, uh, coldness of heart, they've cut you off. And that sucks. And I'm sorry. It will happen. We live in a sinful world. But maybe, just maybe, the Lord will work on them that you can reconcile. But what about, what about some biblical examples, right? Like, oh, pastor, you've been talking about all these things, and I don't really care. I don't know if this is really in the Bible. Should I really confront people? Yeah, yeah, you should. Uh, the Bible's actually ripe with people, um, like Alexander the coppersmith in 2 Timothy 4.14 and 1 Timothy 1.20, uh, where Paul had to hand over to Satan because, uh, because he did Paul great harm. Or Humanaeus, right? Hymenaeus, if you're reading it in the English, there's a Y. It's an Upsilon in Greek. Humanaeus, who's also mentioned in 1 Timothy 1.20, and again in 2 Timothy 2.17, along with a guy named Philetus, who are spreading bad teaching, and the teaching is spreading like gangrene. Paul had to confront these guys. They did not repent. But then there's also some who have. There's good news. Good news, some people have turned around. If you were to turn to Acts 15, you could read about Paul having a disagreement with Barnabas about whether or not they're going to take John Mark, who's the author of the Gospel of Mark. It'd be awkward to have two Gospels of John. But John Mark went by Mark predominantly. And, and so there, uh, Mark had actually abandoned Paul and Timothy, pre, or uh, I'm sorry, Paul and Barnabas previously. And so Paul's like, we can't trust him. And Barnabas says, yes, we can. And so Paul and Barnabas have this huge breakup. They, they stop traveling together. And so they go separate ways. Barnabas takes Mark and Paul takes Silas. And off they go to spread the gospel. I know you know the name Silas. So they, <laughs> they go off to spread the gospel. But then, even though there's that big breakup, that big separation, we could actually turn again to 2 Timothy chapter 4, and we could see that Paul's reconciled with Mark. He says to Timothy, bring Mark to me. He's useful to me for the gospel. There is reconciliation. When people get confronted with their sin, they might repent. That's the hope. And more famously, we have a crazy situation in 1 Corinthians 5, where an unnamed man has committed a sin that is not celebrated even among the pagans. He's married either his stepmom or his mother. 
And, and the Corinthian church is like, woo, great, I'm so glad this, they're, they're married and this is wonderful. And Paul is appalled. No, that's not, that's not, that's not meant to be a joke. Paul is disgusted, there we go, uh, with this. And so, so he writes and he says, he says, you're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And when we read that in 1 Corinthians, we're like, what just happened? Deliver a guy over to Satan? What the heck does that mean? And, and it's crazy all the way until we turn to 2 Corinthians. And we read in chapter 2 when he says this. He says, now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. That means somebody in sin. Somebody in sin is causing pain to all of them. For such a one the dude in 1 Corinthians 5, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. In short, the man repented, apparently divorced his mom or stepmom, and he was restored to right fellowship. And this is a good thing, because as Paul put it, those who tolerate sin within Christian community who don't confront it, are being outwitted by Satan. When you don't confront someone who sinned against you, you are being outwitted by Satan. You might think you're doing yourself and the other person a failure, or I'm sorry, I, that, was, that was what I meant to say. That was an awesome Freudian slip. You might think that you're doing them a favor, <laughs> But ultimately, you're failing them, and you're giving in to the wiles of the devil, and you are failing to outwit Satan. It brings a different light to confrontation, doesn't it? Because if you don't confront it, if you're just like, wow, maybe I'm just being a little harsh to that dude in adultery. Maybe I'm just being a little harsh to that person who's listening to false teachers. Maybe I'm just being a little harsh to somebody who simply is just an egregious and constant sin. And, ah, oh, you know, if I leave them alone, God will deal with them. No. No. No, you're being outwitted by Satan. You're giving into the flesh. The easy way out is to say nothing. But the gospel way out is to speak up in love and in grace. Friends, we're to take sin seriously. We're supposed to read these words in Matthew 18, 15 to 17. We're supposed to, we're supposed to do them. They're a command. They're an imperative. They give us proper steps. They give us a procedure. Man, I'm a procedure guy. I have a certain order, and I need to do things in a certain order. And if I don't do them in that order, then I basically screw myself over for the rest of the day. This happened just the other day. I went, I went off my schedule, and guess what? My day was literally shot. We're to be gracious and not overly judgmental. 
If we return back to Matthew 7, for, uh, Jesus says this, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You're not supposed to be harsh. You're not supposed to be judgmental. But we are supposed to take sin seriously. Now, you might be sitting here wondering, if you can rem remember back six hours ago or whenever I started the sermon, you might be wondering what happened to the rest of the passage that I read. Matthew 18, 18 to 20 is there to say that Christ confirms the casting out of those who are unrepentant sinners. He gives the couple chapters before, Jesus said to Peter, he said, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Meaning Peter is being given this authority to say that, hey, God agrees with you. The Father agrees with you. I agree with you when you have to do these hard things. And now, Peter, now Jesus is applying that same principle to anyone in conflict. But there's a catch. Verse 19, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, can't just be one person making the decision. It can't just be you willy-nilly throwing out hell cards. Instead, you have to talk with someone else, probably one of the witnesses, probably an elder in the church, probably a pastor, and say, uh, no, in, in reality, this is just not uh, working out. I know, I'm thinking of Oprah Winfrey. You go to hell. You go. Anyway, I, I know, I know, but I, I was thinking, if you've ever seen that Oprah Winfrey skit, she's like, you get a car, you get a car. Anyway, <laughs> so anyway, but uh, going back to the sermon now that I've completely derailed myself. Um, and then 1820, which is almost repeated in every single prayer gathering in Baptist circles for the, at least for the last 50 years, is actually in reference to church discipline. For where two or three are gathered in my name, why are they gathered? They're gathered to discuss discipline. There I am among them. Friends, when we have to make hard decisions about whether or not somebody is in right fellowship, united with the church, united with Christ's body, Jesus is present. Jesus is there. Now, verses 21 and 22, there's a parable that extends beyond that. But verses 21 and 22, I think, are hilarious. Because here's Peter again. And not only here's Peter again, but here's Peter maybe trying to find a loophole because this is just like us, right? Like, okay, so, uh, you know, this guy keeps doing the same sin against me and I'm getting really sick and tired of it. Uh, uh, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I have to forgive him? Now, that's an important note or an important thing to say because in Jewish culture, it was twice. If somebody committed the same sin against you, Twice? Gone. Not three strikes, you're out. Two strikes. But then Peter, knowing how gracious and kind Jesus is, extends it. He goes, as, as many as seven times? No, says Jesus. I do not say to you seven times but 77 times. The Greek is actually really difficult here. It's not 77. It's not two sevens next to each other. It's 77s. That's a lot. The point is that you keep 
forgiving them. If somebody has sinned against you and they repent and then they go back and they do the same thing, the Christian's duty is to keep forgiving them. Now, what if the person really, really doesn't actually repent? Well, that's when you go through the process, right? I like my processes. You do the process. If somebody, if somebody is a serial adulterer in a relationship, you don't just keep going back to them. But if a brother who keeps committing the same sin, offending you, speaking up when they shouldn't, saying something stupid, using the Lord's name in vain, swearing in the middle of a kid's Bible study, right? That's like anathema. But, but, <laughs> but, but you, if, they've, if they're really, really, really feeling the conviction of their sin, then you forgive them. But you still have to go to them and tell them their sin. The author of Hebrews says this, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. A person confronted about their sin won't enjoy it. It's not pleasant for them. But if they receive the conviction, if they receive that confrontation as loving, and they take it as discipline, then the righteousness that's produced from it is a glorious thing. To have gained your brother is the goal of all confrontation about sin. The hope to see a sinner restored to grace. A sinner feeling the need for their own correction and repenting, recognizing that they in themselves are not sufficient for their own salvation, and turns to Jesus and the church for help and aid and mercy. What a beautiful thing. It is wonderful. And it shouldn't happen, but it does because of Jesus. We ought to be praying for ourselves, by the way. I don't want to just imply that this is other people. If we just think this is others, that's exactly how you create Pharisees. You will someday be the sinner that needs to be confronted. And you should start praying now that you receive that confrontation well. Because when you see the peaceful fruit of righteousness form in your heart, when you respond to conviction and confrontation, you'll find yourself praising God for the one who actually confronted you. I'm amazed when I discipline my kids and my kids still want me. I'm amazed when I get frustrated, which happens relatively frequently, right there, <laughs> earlier, and my kids still want to be in my presence. They still want love. Why? Because when we understand discipline as an act of love, then frankly, we'll keep going back will want that restoration, will love it. Confrontation is not easy, but it's necessary. 
The sermon summary is this. Confrontation about sin is necessary in Christian community, and the hope is always for repentance and restoration. Take that away today, saints. Let's pray. Lord, it's a hard path to walk, and sometimes it can make us feel a little pharisaical um, to, uh, to, to feel the need to confront someone about their sin. But Lord, it's a good thing. It's happened to me so often, and I praise you for it. And Lord, I thank you that, uh, that oftentimes we have our spouses to stand and tell us that, that, that we've gone too far or we're in sin. But Lord, may we listen to our brothers, may we listen to our sisters when they come to us to tell us about our sin so that we can be reconciled and in right fellowship with your body and with you. It's in your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. If it weren't for Jesus' birth, there would be no hope in confrontation. We would find no reconciling work of the Savior in the midst of a sinner having struggles with unrepentant sin. Go in peace, saints.